Hello, and welcome to the NLP Highlights Podcast, where we talk about interesting recent work in natural language processing. This is Matt Gardner and Walid Ammar. We are research scientists at the Allen Institute for Artificial Intelligence. All right, our guests today are uh, Jakob, Asko-Wright, and Ashish Fazwani. Uh, Jakob and Ashish work at Google's Mountain View office, uh, where they develop large-scale systems for language understanding. The work helped Google's products understand users' questions and commands uh, better. Uh, very happy to have you uh, with us. Thank you. Thank you. So today we're going to uh, discuss uh, your paper titled Attention is All You Need. Uh, it's co-authored with Noam Shazir, Nikki Parmer, Leon Jones, Aidan Gomez, Lucas Kaiser, and Ila Polosokin. Yeah, and uh, so the key idea of this paper is that, you know, RNNs and CNNs are useful building blocks for modeling sequences, um, but they have inherent structural uh, constraints which limit their utility. So this paper proposes using a new type of attention network that addresses these limitations and it outperforms previous state-of-the-art results in challenging tasks in machine translation. It also has been shown to work in constituency parsing. So uh, could you give us uh, a little bit more information about um, the limitations of the RNNs uh, which which triggered uh, this problem? So I think basically the, the intuition that got this started is that despite gating mechanisms uh, like LSTM or GRU cells, um, it's still challenging for RNNs to um, effectively learn or efficiently uh, learn long distance, uh, long range dependencies in, in signals like language, uh, but also images and, and other potential applications. And uh, that ultimately gave rise to this inkling or this intuition that having some uh, having a mechanism where um, within each layer, uh, you basically have a much more global view of your input structure and, and your output structure uh, could be beneficial for, um, for learning and then potentially also um, uh, be more efficient in terms of uh, computational complexity. Um, or at least not less efficient, despite the despite the global view. And uh, so, how about uh, CNN? So RNNs have this like uh, constraint that you cannot really jump ahead of yourself and do later computations. But in CNNs, uh, this kind of is not a problem. But still, like your, your proposed uh, architecture uh, is is improved. Uh, so could you explain what are the limitations of CNNs? Well, I think ultimately the the um, CNNs suffer from uh, the same issue if you look at any given layer, right? You, uh, you usually have to limit your receptive field size. Um, you can't process uh, uh, your entire input or output signal with a single application of a convolution. Right? You, you typically stride it across um, your input and output, and as a result, uh, need multiple layers um, to, uh, to obtain a more global view. Um, in particular, contrasting kind of uh, with um, uh, let's say seek. byte uh, net or seek to seek. Byte net or seek to seek, and yeah. in byte net, um, uh, through this dilation technique, you need a logarithmic number of layers before you actually can combine uh, information from different positions. Um, in com seek to seek, you in fact need a linear number of layers before uh, that information kind of meets in in the network. Yeah. But. Now, to say something good about this, I, I mean, convolutional models—they uh, were sort of inspired by these by these limitations of sequential models like LSTMs or gated linear units that uh, that Jakob talked about. And 
they had the right. They had the. They they are all. They're also. Um, they they also solve the partial problem of, of of gradient propagation instead of having gradient propagating through length, gradient propagating through height, and um, so sort of. And and you can and instead of sequential computation, you can consume all your inputs and outputs at training time simultaneously. So they do have these properties, but um, as Yaka pointed out. Um, the number of layers you need, or the if you, or in order to for everything to interact, for every position to interact with every position, you are uh, the number of layers is a function of the length of the input, logarithmic or linear. Logarithmic in the case of byte net, linear in the case of uh, constant to seek. Yeah, I think actually comparing comparing convolutions and and this kind of uh, self attention or or purely attentional um, architecture, um, the thing that in a certain sense, they they share, uh, I think, most uh, prevalently or most saliently uh, in comparison to recurrent um, models, is that they're much more parallelizable. Right. So in, in recurrent models, due to the fact that you uh, push along this hidden state that depends on your entire uh, um, on the entire uh, history, uh, basically one side or even both sides um, of a certain position in in a say linear signal. Um, you just are limited, uh, fundamentally uh, or inherently limited, in the parallelism that you can uh, obtain within a given instance. And both CNNs and this uh, and the transformer and the fully attentional models don't have that limitation, which ultimately uh, allows you to parallelize them much more effectively. So we've talked about some of the problems in parallelization and in um, ease of connecting. Distance, distant dependencies of uh, LSTMs or other RNNs and CNNs. What's your solution to this problem? I think some people are probably familiar with this already because this paper was submitted like four months ago, but can you give a, a description of, of the model that you're proposing here? Yeah, so the basic building block is a um, self-attention mechanism in which you um, effectively uh, do a pairwise comparison between every two positions of your signal. So let's just for the, the sake uh, of simplicity stick with um, linear sequences for now. Uh, you basically compare, it in, within any given layer, you compare each pair of, um, uh, of positions, or rather the representations for those positions at that layer with each other. And then uh, that comparison um, you then use to uh, generate the distribution for each position a distribution over other positions, uh, and that you use in uh, weighting the representations for the other positions in a weighted average uh, that you then um, combine with the current position uh, in order to, in our case, with, with a fully connected uh, neural network, compute the uh, representation for that position at the next layer. So one way of thinking about that is you basically uh, compute an attention for each position you compute an attention distribution over all the other positions. You, you aggregate the representations for all the other positions and weight them by that attention distribution, and then combine that uh, weighted average with the representation at the position itself, either through residual uh, or by simply uh, including the current uh, position's representation in the weighted average. Um, send that through a position-wise uh, function, in our case, uh, like I said, a fully connected neural network um, with, with two layers and a single non-linearity in between, and then you obtain uh, the next layer's representation for that position. And you do that 
for each of the positions in your sequence. And the, and the decoder and this and on the on the decoder side, since we can't peek into the future, we have to apply a mask on what position what positions can what what are the legal positions for for a position. Basically, you can only see into the past because at inference time you don't have access to the future. So this mechanism uh, is replicated on the on the um, on the decoder side. So we have an encoder decoder architecture. Uh, except that on the decoder side, we have uh, a mask that locks access to future positions, right. and uh, and uh, the structure repeats. Um, you have self, you have this self attention mechanism followed with uh, feed fo followed by feed forward layers, and then you also have um, encoder sort of following the standard encoder decoder attention um, in LSTM translation models. We have encoder decoder attentions where where each decoder layer attends to the representations from the last encoder layer or the output of the encoder. And I think the key, kind of the key insight is that um, that sounds uh, like a lot of work, right? Because you now have this uh, N squared uh, number of comparisons that you have to perform. Um, but it turns out that it works in, in uh, your favor in two different ways. One is that um, those comparisons are trivially parallelizable, and not only are the comparisons trivially parallelizable, but also then forming the resulting weighted averages per position and performing the subsequent kind of integrated or integration computation where you recompute each position's representation using that weighted average. These are also all inherently trivially parallelized uh, within each layer, but also uh, works in your favor in the way that the comparison operation you can uh, employ are much simpler than um, uh, the operations that in RNNs or CNNs you would employ per position. Uh, and so in, in our specific incarnation, we, we have a scaled dot product that we compute between the representations for each of the positions in order to obtain the attention distributions. And that in turn uh, is, is um, uh, linear in the dimension of your representations, whereas what RNNs typically execute per position is actually quadratic uh, in the dimension of your representations. And it turns out that um, for uh, the representations that we commonly use, variable length representations that we commonly use for things like sentences, um, the embeddings at each position, say at each word or word piece position, actually the dimension is much larger than the length of the sequence. And so performing uh, something that's linear in, in that uh, quantity, um, but then uh, staying, um, uh, becoming quadratic in the length uh, is actually um, preferable over being uh, uh, quadratic in the length and um, uh, linear in the, yeah, in the dimension. So instead of, instead of having... Oh, actually, yeah, instead, the of, other way around, yeah, instead of having it's, an ND yes. squared, which is a which is the which is the computational yeah. complexity of convolutions, if you're typically using a hidden dimension of 1024, in our case it's n squared d, so it's cheaper to, yeah, to do this versus exactly. a convolution. Exactly. Now, separable cons, uh, like we'd like to point out, have this property because yeah. they break up the convolution, this ND squared computation into um, uh, uh, into ND. Uh, and uh, they because they they break it up into two into first running spatially and then depthwise, so um, they have this they do uh, shave off computation. So okay, so we've got then a model that 
you can think of essentially as replacing an, uh, an any RNN, where instead of doing a recurrent computation, like we get an input uh, of a vector of sequences, embeddings for each word, and then mm -hmm. we pass it through it, your attention encoder and get out a sequence of vectors, just like an LSTM gives us. Yep. And you, your paper describes experiments with, um, as Ashish talked about earlier, uh, using this as both an encoder and a decoder right. to do machine translation, right? And you showed some really good results. Uh, we probably don't need to go into too many details on that because I have some more interesting questions to ask, but you want to give it like a summary of the results that you found on these in these experiments? Sure. Um, so for, uh, so there are two, um, well, there are two sets of experiments, there are machine translation and uh, constituency parsing. Uh, so in machine translation, we, we ran experiments on uh, the WMT English, German, English, French translation task. Um, and so we have two sorts, two sets of models, the base model, which is a smaller model and uh, the big model, which has a, which has many more parameters. It's the same number of layers. Uh, the base, the larger model also has, a, um, Sorry, yeah, it has it has many more parameters, and uh, the base model itself um, uh, outperforms the previous best ensemble uh, results, which was the convolutional sequence to sequence uh, translation model from Facebook by by about a blue point. And uh, our big model uh, adds a blue point on top of that for English German. So this is a now this is a single model, and and this is a. This is a significant improvement over uh, previous results. Uh, on English French, our our big model uh, sort of matches the previous best ensemble English French translation result on the WMT task, um, and uh, running times are considerably lower than uh, considerably lower than than previous uh, both previous sequential models and sort of feed forward uh, convolutional models. Right, right it, because of the parallelization that you mentioned, right? It, you, it's a lot less computationally expensive. Right, and I, I think that that's kind of the, maybe even more importantly than the quality improvements, a lot of which also stem from, uh, you know, very well-tuned uh, training setup and uh, learning rate schemes and all of these things. Ultimately, I think uh, the, the thing that's unaffected by, by all of this tweaking is the fact that you simply spend an order of magnitude fewer flops uh, to attain uh, attain those um, those results. Ultimately, a lot of the um, a lot of the kind of tools of the trade or tricks of the trade uh, that we employed in training these models, you can apply to recurrent uh, models as well, right? So you can imagine there's uh, there's one interesting um, component that we use on top of or kind of extending the self attention and encoder decoder. Uh, attention uh, in, in this model, which is multi-headed attention. Uh, and uh, we can go into more detail about that uh, also if you'd like to, but that mechanism applies basically uh, directly also to uh, convolutional and recurrent models. But um, ultimately, the, the thing that remains um, where, where these self-attentional models or fully self-attentional models have a clear advantage is, uh, is the workload, is the computational complexity and the parallelization. Yeah, that, that was the next thing I was going to ask you about, actually. Um, so, nice segue there. Um, the, I've seen this notion of like multi-headed similarity in just a, one or two other places. There's a, a paper called Multi-Perspective multi Context Matching for Machine Comprehension that did a very similar kind of... Um, you, uh, it, it's the same mechanism that you have for multi-headed attention. And 
I think it's a really interesting and important idea, like uh, being able to not judge similarity on a single, not, not judge the similarity between word vectors on a single um, axis, but on multiple different axes. Um, do you want to give us some more detail on what, what you're doing here and how it works? Sure. So in, in, our, in our case, I mean, you could, one could imagine trivially having multiple heads that operate on the same dimension uh, on the sort of on, on a very large dimension, say 1024. And, and you, you essentially have eight heads that are operating in 1024 dimensional space, but that's extremely computationally expensive. Uh, so what we do is we carve up the, the model dimension into, into N8, 16, or four discontiguous blocks, and each head essentially does, uh, does attention separately in each one of these, uh, these each, in each uh, sort of dim dimension block separately. So if you, had a, if you had 512, then you'd break it up into 64 dimensional blocks if you had eight heads, and then you'd have eight, uh, you'd have attentions on each, each one of these, uh, each one of these uh, different dimensions. And one advantage of this is that if you had a single attention head, then uh, you wouldn't you wouldn't be able to sort of combine pieces of uh, you wouldn't be able to combine pieces of information from two positions uh, because imagine if you you had you have just one probability distribution, and uh, if you wanted to combine one portion of of uh, of the dimension, one portion of the space from one position and another portion of the space from another position, um, you'd end up get, getting averaging effects. Whereas here, you can actually stitch these two things together because one head could high, assign high probability to one subspace in one of the positions, and another head could assign high probability to another subspace uh, in the other position. That also relates to the uh, positional encoding uh, part of the uh, world. Could you uh, could you elaborate a little bit about how do you do the positional encoding? So I think there's there's one thing we should uh, say say head there, yeah. uh, which is that um, one thing that we didn't have in the very first revision of the paper that that we've added since is a comparison of the positional encoding scheme, the sinusoidal positional encoding scheme uh, that that we used for most of the experiments with um, learned positional encodings, where we show that they're basically equivalent uh, when it comes to end-to-end -end performance. So you don't uh, necessarily need to rely on, on that positional encoding scheme. Uh, we do think it's particularly pretty because it doesn't have any parameters, um, any, any, any trainable parameters. And the idea is basically uh, that you represent positions as uh, the values of sinusoidal functions um, uh, with different uh, phases, um, uh, different periods, and as a result, you know, kind of maybe intuitively thinking of this as something like a, um, a, a frequency um, domain uh, uh, transformation, um, uh, effectively represent positions as as the um, superposition uh, of a bunch of different sinusoids at different frequencies. So. Uh, Backing up just a minute there, it se seems like uh, LSTMs, because they encode things sequentially, you can get some notion of what word goes where, right? And so what, when you do the self-attention, you lose this notion, right? So um, just backing up a little bit for people who aren't familiar with um, what you did in the paper, that's, that's what we're trying to solve here, right? So that um, you can know that, that two words are close to each other. Uh, when you're doing some attention, because that actually is sometimes important for certain kinds of things you might want to uh, you want you might want an, an encoder to know. Um, so, uh, 
I actually would like to, to dig into this a little bit more. Um, do you know how, so you, you introduced this sinusoidal, sinusoidal um, positional encoding where you're, you construct a priori this matrix um, for, for each position uh, in, the doc, in the sentence. Um, you get a vector for each position and then you add that to the word vector at that position at the very bottom of your, of your network and it never shows up again. It, well, it, kind of, it kind of does, right? Because the residual connections have, have the ability to sort of move this information around. Uh -huh. And we ran an experiment where we, where, we, uh, where, we, where we sort of cut the residuals and the results were, were sort of catastrophic. You could tell that the, uh, that the later layers are not picking up on, uh, typically the, uh, the uh, alignments or the attentions are somewhat close to the diagonal because of locality. And you could tell that they're not picking it up. And then we we detached the residuals, and then we uh, then uh, added positional encodings at every layer without the residuals. And then we saw these effects sort of come back in, where the models now, because that positional information, each layer was able to get reasonable attentions along the diagonal. But again, uh, the scores are not the same as having residuals, so the residuals are definitely carrying more information, but there, but certainly uh, uh, we do think that the residuals are responsible for carrying positional information all through. There's, there's other ways of mitigating, yeah. uh, of mitigating the effect of uh, kind of washing out positions mm -hmm. um, that you could imagine, and we're actually experimenting uh, more with, with the respective effects of, of, of using those. So one way, for instance, is to not just add whether it's learned or coming from these sinusoids, not just add the positional encoding, but concatenate it. Mm -hmm. At which point, if you're using multi-head attention, you're actually able to learn that you should propagate uh, only the position part untouched and only, uh, or the position part untouched and only um, combine non-position uh, representing pieces of the, of the other positions representations. Um, that's still uh, outstanding, uh, but but we'll um, or <laughs> outstanding. The wrong, the wrong term in English. The results are outstanding. <laughs> <laughs> we'll we'll, yeah. we'll we'll get some we'll get some some there in the future. But the uh, the residuals, like she said, right, clearly do other things than just uh, propagate them. Another another fix, and I guess this is what what you alluded to, is, is to just add in position uh, right. encodings at every layer. Right. Um, and, and one might wonder that, like, that just adding like, would that be risky because you're adding it on top of your learned of your learned embeddings of your lookups, right? But one point to note is that the model is actually learning the embeddings, so it could adjust the input embeddings uh, such that these positional encodings are being added to it. But it, but in case you wanted to use positional encodings in another in another uh, sort of task where the inputs actually had some information like spectrograms or the outputs of some convolution network that actually crunched an image, then you would run the risk of actually washing all the information away with your by adding positional encodings and you'd rather concatenate. But in this case, the model has the ability to adjust the input embeddings that are being learned and adjust for the fact that they're going to be added with the positional encodings. Sure. Yeah, we were we were wondering how the model could actually learn, yes, like yeah, with, without washing this out. And we wondered, like, is this is this rotating vectors in this space because you're normalizing them before, like, if you if you add a sinusoid to a vector and then renormalize it, so it's on the unit sphere. You could think of this as a rotation, maybe. And I wondered if that was what was going on, or just, I just wondered if you had any intuition for how this actually works. So it's tricky because um, this works with learned and learned embeddings as well, right? Yes. So it's not this doesn't necessitate some. I mean, 
the the CR might might be true for some sets, but because this phenomenon, because adding learned positional encodings works equally well, it's able to separate out that information somehow. Um, basically, uh, first of all, I don't think we know exactly how how this is working. Uh, I have a I don't know. One hypothesis is that not all the frequencies of the sinusoids are equally important for any given uh, for any given problem, right? And you know, you could imagine that you basically uh, not only are they not equally important, some are um, within, say, the length of a of a typical sentence. Uh, some uh, well, very much uh, uh, much less than others. And so as a result, it, you could imagine that the model just um, uses those uh, dimensions uh, for uh, the word embeddings more. Um, like I said, more experiments are needed, and, and uh, we're actually working on, on trying a bunch of different things. I'm not entirely sure we'll ever yeah. exactly know. Yeah, but this is an interesting question. I mean, yeah. like this, this, I mean, your question suggests one, one could also examine the learned positional encodings and see what properties they have. And if they sort of they they have some intersecting properties with these sinusoids, that would be very interesting. But uh, we haven't sort of done this as yet. Yeah. Right, right. Our our two hypotheses were either that would be the case, and like if this is a rotation, then you should be able to learn that it's a rotation, and you should see it in the learned embeddings, or it's um, essentially pushing the the vectors. Uh, doing a concatenation by reducing the size of the actual word embedding space effectively, which, is, which are both the two things that you came up with. So I, I, I'm glad we, at least in our discussion, came up with the same intuitions that you guys had. So I wonder, I wonder if uh, in your controlled experiments you were able to get like similar results or much worse or much better with replacing some of the uh, transformer layers with RNNs because, or CNNs, because you can, you can potentially interleave them uh, but then you can benefit also from all the other um, aspects that you discussed in the model, including the positional encoding. So we have uh, we have some results, um, both around CNNs in certain places and uh, using RNNs um, uh, instead of the uh, self-attentive decoder. Um, using RNNs instead of the self-attentive decoder has uh, some advantages at inference time, uh, computational complexity-wise, or allows for certain optimizations um, mm -hmm. that uh, that the attention uh, or self-attention layers don't, and we can get roughly the same quality under certain circumstances. Um, you do pay a penalty at training time, and that's the one thing that you can't get around. And then, do you want to talk about the this, CNNs? Or? This yeah. is a this is a good point. I mean. Um, Jacob also mentioned before, right, sort of the, the, the inability of RNNs to capture sort of distant, distant information or, or distant relationships between positions, uh, which seems to indicate that these relationships are probably important on the encoder side. And on the language modeling side, you probably don't need to look very far behind. Engram language models are quite good. Um, so it's like swapping that in with the, with, uh, with the model that doesn't or has difficulty looking really far back is still probably okay because those dependencies are somewhat fairly local on the decoder side. In particular, if you have a tension between the encoder and the decoder. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Um, this, this is kind of related to another thing I was thinking about. Um, uh, as we mentioned briefly earlier, this is essentially a new encoder, right? You could use this as a drop-in replacement for any LSTM. So have you tried this uh, on any other tasks with like just in replacing encoders? So the answer is yes. Um, quite a quite a number of different tasks actually. 
Uh, it's not always trivial and we don't exactly understand yet why. We have some intuitions and then we can tell you more about that in a bit. Um, but so far, um, it usually eventually works and when it does, it works really well. Um, and even just in an encoding uh, setup. Um, so to give you kind of, kind of a flavor, we've tried it in tasks such as next response prediction, um, kind of pairwise uh, uh, textual uh, semantic similarity type tasks. Um, um, we've tried it. Um, classification so far was one of the areas in which it, uh, it was more challenging. Um, but, yeah. but, I mean, some folks figured out how to use, how to, with the right loss, and yes. it seems to work quite well. Right. Yeah. Um, one thing that, that seems uh, fairly consistent among all the different tasks where we've used it is that um, one key challenge uh, in many tasks where the um, environment isn't such that there is a strong bias towards um, uh, local dependencies um, or you know, identifying local dependencies on the source side, in tasks where that's not the case, um, the attention can collapse and basically stay uniform across yeah. the entirety of your signal. Yeah. And the lower layers never latch on to looking to effectively acting much more like very limited receptive field convolutions. In tasks where you have dependencies, um, such as machine translation, mm -hmm. uh, that kind of strongly indicate local dependencies on top of maybe long range stuff. Uh, there, that problem doesn't seem to be the case. And there are two solutions that we've found to work pretty consistently. Number one is you replace your lowest layers with convolutions. And you just have convolutions with a small receptive field. You run those for a few layers. And then on top of that, you start doing self-attention. And another solution that we think is a bit more elegant is you effectively reduce um, the, so to speak, receptive field of the self-attention mechanism. So you provide an inductive bias uh, effectively towards looking into smaller neighborhoods at the lowest layers by saying at the lowest layers, uh, the self-attention mechanism only compares positions that are nearby according to some neighborhood, uh, some definition of neighborhood uh, uh, around the positions. And both of those consistently in different tasks seem to solve this problem. Yeah, that's really interesting. Uh, one other thing that, that we're, we're also considering or with that's probably worth trying is auxiliary losses and uh, that might help uh, in particular encoders encoders to lock in to uh, the right um, to the right attention distributions I we think that that might also be a, mm -hmm. a, a promising direction are you thinking like um, if you know that one word modifies another word you use say like some kind of predicated uh, argument structure as an auxiliary task like what 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 are you thinking of here um, so one could imagine language modeling or doing something language modeling like or, or some something like oh, okay. Yeah, I, yeah, okay I, I thought you were saying something like a, a supervision on the attentions itself But you're you're just thinking of multitask on some additional objective people have done uh, in, in different work with um, Kind of more traditional attention mechanisms people have shown additional supervision or additional uh, losses on uh, the attention distributions themselves uh, to potentially be beneficial. I think one should try this here also, say for instance, you know, uh, shallow syntactic structure uh, or things like that. Um, 
I personally think that's it's a double-edged sword. It, it can backfire, um, right. especially because we've found that the problems are not at the more abstract levels or layers. The the, the problems typically show up in the lower uh, in the lower layers, where really the bias you want to give is is much simpler, um, and and not quite you know not as complex as say shallow syntactic structure. Yeah. Uh, we, we've tried recently using self-attention to encode a passage in squat or other question answering kinds of things. And what we found is that the, I, I'm not certain this is what's going on, but if the vector, if the, if the passage is really long, uh, it seems like you're going to have a harder time. Like there, there will be more places where your attention is going to match. And so you're going to have a harder time unless you have a stronger bias toward nearness. You have a harder time learning things. In, in fact, we... We did a very similar experiment where we constrained the attention to only be within a window and found significantly better performance. I guess that's very similar to what you just described also. Yes. Yeah. So, so try out doing that only for lower layers yeah. and then letting the higher layers run free. That has worked quite well for us. That's interesting. Um, it's computationally feasible, right? If it's infeasible, then, uh, then you know, that's an easy way of uh, basically uh, constraining the model uh, effectively without losing too much uh, quality. Um, and gaining quite some computational performance. I guess this is a good plugin for the Tensor Tensor library, but these, this particular operation or uh, this particular computation that you want to carry out has been implemented in the local, in these local attention functions, where precisely these there are very small receptive fields that that allow for such restrictions. And so it's uh, yeah, you could you could uh, exploit all of those things that all of us, including people from outside Google, have also been contributing to. Mm -hmm. Cool. Uh, so it seems like when you, uh, when you, when your task is like a classification problem uh, for the entire text, it's not really clear how to define the key, uh, like or, sorry, or the query uh, that you use to do the attention. It feels like this is like a fundamental question uh, for this approach: uh, how to define the query in, in these cases. Uh, do you have any comments on how to how to do that? Yes, this is a great question. Like you know, uh, machine translation is fantastic because. Uh, you get this. You get this previous word in the decoder. Then that first does itself attention, and then it attends to the encoder, which gets which gets the signal from this previous word. So this previous word forms a, like sort of creates this excellent query in machine translation. Whereas uh, whereas, and if you're just sort of encoding, uh, you know, what kind of what what yeah, what is an informative query is 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 a harder question to ask and like. Like if you, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's a. I, I suspect that you probably, yeah, you probably need to know what you're looking for and pack it inside the, the the query. I mean, I, what would be an example? Like, so for example, a visual query answering questions from visual queries, right? The question's an excellent query that you can then sort of attend over the image and sort of figure out the important parts, right? But uh, in, in, in sentence classification, perhaps some idea of um, somehow getting information about the label in the query itself or what you're looking for would be, would be useful. I do think that ultimately the auxiliary loss uh, strategy or multitask uh, strategy is, is going to be more effective um, for, for these kind of things. Um, there, there might very well be ways yeah. of, of doing it effectively yeah. uh, without going down that route, but yeah. um, it's very attractive yeah. anyway. Yeah. 
you that answering that question is is yeah. Yeah, yeah, probably sure. the most important question yeah. for using self something like self attention. Yeah. Like what goes in a query is probably very important. Yeah. yeah. But in fact, right, doing these uh, at the lower layers, doing these constrained receptive fields or reduced receptive fields basically answers that question with your neighboring words, sure. which we kind of know from experience to be somewhat true. Right. And then the hope is that at the higher layers, you can just figure it out. But mm -hmm. that might not even be true, right? If your task really is just classification, you, you might not even get it, even if you provide uh, that kind of inductive bias at the lower layers. Um, and you might need either other tricks or auxiliary yeah. losses. So uh, my, my last question is, do you have any notion of what these attention, like you have multi-headed attention, you have many layers of this multi-headed attention. Uh, that's a lot of things to dig through to try to figure out what's going on. I guess you've mentioned that it sure looks like the lower layers uh, look at more ngrammy kinds of things at local context. Do you, do you have any intuitive sense for what this thing is actually learning? So we have we have some examples. Uh, in 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 total, no. Um, but we have some we have some interesting observations uh, that are very consistent. And so exactly what you what you said, right? At the lower layers, it seems like a lot of the heads perform very convolution-like operations, yeah. very local, very um, kind of regular with respect to relative positions. And at higher layers, uh, that becomes increasingly. Uh, it becomes increasingly chaotic or, or global in a certain sense, um, but they're not always. Uh, they're they're often quite peaked. Uh, the attention distributions are often actually quite peaked, and in some cases, in interpretable ways. So we found, for instance, that every translation model we've actually looked at in detail has uh, an attention head uh, in the higher layers that seems to be doing pronominal uh, coreference resolution. And so you basically look at the uh, at the positions um, uh, at which the source sentence has a pronoun, and you see that it attends to uh, potential uh, potential candidates um, that pronoun might refer to. And um, in some cases, even in in ways that suggest that the attention distribution reflects what the model identified as as the proper as the proper reference. Mm -hmm. Um, that's one example. We've seen some cases where um, uh, lexical choice seems to be disambiguated by um, uh, terms or phrases that are strongly indicative of topic. Right. So imagine you have a you have a term that's uh, ambiguous uh, in terms of in terms of lexical lexical choice and translation. Uh, you then might see that at higher layers, the attention. Uh, distribution is peaked around um, topic indicating terms that disambiguate that specific, the translation of that specific term. Some sort of examples of the Winogradsky also, they, yes. so, flavor has have this flavor of these, uh, resolution. Exactly. These things are always a bit risky to mention, yeah, yeah. but we've played around a lot with the fairly simplistic Winograd schema yeah. uh, examples, and we've seen a very consistent um, yeah. Uh, uptick in translation quality on those where the attention very attention distributions very consistently reflected kind of you know uh, attention on the hints uh, that give away uh, the gender or yeah the exact reference that then indicates the gender of the of the translation of the pronoun. That's really interesting. 
Right. Uh, thank you very much for uh, joining us for this discussion. Uh, and uh, I hope uh, some of the audience will be interested in going to the talk at, at NIPS later uh, this year. And uh, feel free to, if people have questions, feel free to email all of us. Yeah, and, feel and, free to email us. And, uh, and, and, use and tensor use to tensor. tensor. Yeah. So one thing that we found is um, that, that's important for practitioners is we haven't yet figured out exactly the right ranges of hyperparameter choices that make these models, uh, these kinds of models, as robust as, say, uh, LSTMs or GRUs in, in traditional seek to seek with attention setups. We think this could be because we just haven't learned it, kind of haven't learned these enough, uh, learned about them enough yet. Um, it could also be because they're inherently less robust. We don't know that yet. But uh, one one thing that you can basically where you can uh, uh, use our uh, experiments as a, to, 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 as a shortcut for yourself is to just download tensor to tensor and use that for experiments in this direction. Um, a lot of the kind of that exploration has already been done. Uh, like Ashish said, there's a bunch of operations now that tensor to tensor supports that we didn't have for the original um, uh, models in the attention is all you need paper that we will use in upcoming work, um, and um, such as the uh, local attention with limited receptive field, uh, or local self-attention with limited receptive field. Um, do we already have multi-dimensional self-attention in the... Uh, we do not have multi-dimensional. But it's coming. Yeah. Yeah. So um, there will be interesting stuff. Right. Yeah, that's a nice resource. Sorry. Thanks for talking to us. <laughs>